Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? adorable oh yeah no it's horrible it's not adorable but anyway so I'm, I'm like oh this thing called LinkedIn let me look around here so okay so I saw an old a, a friend that I had been um I've seen, I met in auditions right in Chicago when we were doing all in-person stuff lovely human um really like her and and on LinkedIn her her profile popped up and it, I saw that she is a professional like really fancy MC moderator and host for big wig discussions with like, you know, um, celebrity athletes or um, tech giants. They all, they need someone to interview Bill Nye. They call her. And I'm like, man, I really like interviewing people as we do on this show. Like, I think that would be really great. So let me just pick her brain and say, how did you start doing this? How did you go from, she's a lawyer turned actor turned MC, professional MC. And she has this very, very big agent, right? As, and so uh, there's like agents for everything. So you have speaking agents. Great. So I was like, let me pick her brain. So we got on a Zoom. It was lovely. She was super helpful. And she was like, Jen, I think that I- I'm going to totally hook you up with my agent. And I was like, great. So she did the intro and I wrote this e- fabulous email, you know, because those are just how I do and explaining who I am, what I'm doing and a link to my website. And uh, the person wrote back like, let's zoom. Great. So herein lies the trouble. What I think I'm getting into is, of course, there's always the underpinnings of this is a job interview. She could, she could take me on but with agents and managers, it's tricky because you're, I'm actually going to end up fucking paying them. So what the fuck, man? It's, sh- but it feels a lot like a power dynamic where they have the power and I don't. Now, this is partially because of the way I'm oriented to the world, but this is partially the way the fucking industry is set up, right? Like these fancy agents have all the power and all the resources and we just have to prove ourselves. But listen, I sent an email that was all very proovy proovy without being obnoxious. So I had felt like I had sold myself in the email and my website is very clear about who I am and my vibe if you choose to read it and look at it. Right. So I did that. So I showed up and I was all, this is my first like interview or whatever you want to call it with an agent in a very long time, because I've had my team for a while and I've never done speaking out what the fuck this is. I'm just, I'm doing what I think is an informational interview to see if perhaps there's a place for me on their roster. That's how I walk into this. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I get on the call and perfectly fine human. She's a perfectly fine human being. And I do what I always do, which is says, which, which is, you know, we shoot the shit. And then I say, Hey, tell me about like how you ended up working here because you had said in your email, you had some interesting background. So she said, well, this is your time. And I said, I know I, my jam is I, I really need to, right. right. She's like, this is, (laughs) 
But I'm like, okay, like, are you not aware that I'm doing the thing that I, you might sign me to, okay, we're just going to, I said, this is my jam. Like you, you definitely, you just go. And so she talks and did get flustered and was like, I'm not having trouble. I'm having trouble articulating. And I'm like, okay, this was not supposed to be this fucking hard. Right. And then, so then we launch into where I am, you know, and, um, I say, listen, uh, this is what I, I'm an actor and I'm a writer and I am, um, a consultant right now. And I have a podcast with like, I, this is what I do. And I am, I, what I know is I'm really good at, and I explained how I thought I might fit into the speaking and emceeing world. And she was not impressed with my, my, the way I, um, I think approached the conversation and the way that I was bringing up, um, possible representation, right? Like that, that she, it was like, um, my pitch, like my pitch, if you asked her, if you asked me to ask her, I would say, she said, oh, her pitch of herself did not go well. I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but that's the vibe I was getting. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And then I realized what was happening, which is what happens every fucking time something weird like this happens, which is people underestimate people, especially women, and think that because I didn't show up saying, these are the reasons I'm a fucking badass didn't, I didn't do a hard sell. I didn't, that I am not, I don't care about my career. I'm not, um, a real hustler or go-getter. Right. Like that is the, this happens all the time, but also I'm not sure the person read my email or looked at my website, which is right. Which is information in itself. Right. Uh, it's, you know, you could call it lazy. I, I, my friend was like, that's just lazy. I, I mostly think whatever it is, it wasn't a priority to do that. Perhaps they thought I was going to jump on and do that. Right. Like that was the purpose of the call. We had two competing ideas of what was going to happen on this call. Right. And we didn't, it wasn't clear. So then I realized, oh, she thinks I'm a nobody, which is, which is, which is what happens a lot. And I said, oh, oh, this is what's happening. She thinks that, ah, I haven't earned my place here. I haven't. And I'm like, okay. So then what I do subtly is drop, as Miles puts it, like he can listen sometimes through the, he's like, oh, you really have this way of sort of like putting people in their place in this really nice way, which is, I'm like, oh, you know, thank you so much for telling me this information, which is that I'm basically not big enough for them to even consider repping me. Right. That's what she said. Like, I don't have enough cachet or whatever, whatever. And I'm like, oh, okay. So then I subtly, Gina, drop all the cachet or whatever it's called. Like, I'm like, oh, this is so helpful because I, I literally said this and it's the truth. I said, because when I have my meeting with the CAA speakers, like agent, like it's going to come in really handy, all the stuff you're telling me. And her eyes got really wide. And I thought, this is so dumb. 
you wait i thought she was the caa agent for no she's at a different agency oh i see okay but she is like that they're a they're a similar agent agency Big wig, big wig for speakers. But CAA is the Death Star. They just are. And I know someone there who hooked me up. But she doesn't know. I, and I don't care what she knows. But I just said, you know, and it was partially true and partially, of course, I'm trying to say, like, listen, person, listen, you, I know what I'm doing. What the? And she goes, oh. And I go, yeah. I'm like, I was like, yeah, this is going to be so helpful because what I'm hearing is that like, until I'm of a certain caliber and have a certain experience that you wouldn't, you wouldn't consider signing me exclusively. And she was like, yeah, yeah, that's. And then I said, okay, this is great. And then I said, and it's also really helpful to know that like, maybe when, and then I dropped another, a friend of mine asked me maybe to host something like host the fucking MCA from the Beastie Boys Memorial. Like they have this huge MCA Memorial and Adam Horowitz, who I met at the fucking vet was like, Oh my God, you should, you have, you're so funny. Would you be interested in hosting the New York city version? I said, Oh, fucking yes. So I said, Oh, this is so great. And and then I dropped that on the call. I'm like, so when I'm, maybe I'll just negotiate this fucking thing myself because then I could keep all the money. Like, I just was like, fuck you. Like you, you, it's, it's so weird, Gina, to be psychologically astute, but also you wonder if you're a little crazy, but I I don't care about that. I mean, like, am I making this up? But I don't think I was. So then I dropped that and she was like, oh, and, and then the time was up for our allotted half hour conversation that she had set aside. First of all, first of all, when people put the zoom for half hour. I'm like, you're so ridiculous. Fuck you. Half hour. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cause you only have a half hour. Okay. We work from home. Okay. <laughs> anyway. So it was a half hour, which I noticed. And I was like, so I thank you so much for meeting with us and like, or for meeting with me. And I, um, I've learned a lot. And then they said, let me leave you with this. And I was like, if you want to, when you get your materials together, we'd love to put you on the website and like have people and like an agent. And if you need me to broker a deal for you, I would totally do that for you. And I thought, I said, okay, great. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if this is how business is going and it's supposed to go, but if so, I don't want anything to do with this because this is dumb because we could have, I'm in communications. We could have cut all this out. So I felt terrible. It was a terrible feeling to feel like, okay, so I showed up. I don't know if I did the wrong thing or you did the wrong thing or whatever. So I went to that place of like, either I'm evil, she's evil, black and white thinking. And then I, and then I just chilled and I, I just thought, okay, well that didn't go well. Why, why don't I feel great? And it was because this industry, the arts and entertainment industry Now, let me tell you something. I never have those conversations with other industries, actually. But I don't do a lot. Like my job interviews, there was none of that. Zero. Zilch. Now, when I met with a manager 
before, like a couple months ago, there was that. So I think what people have the expectation is, is that you're, that I'm going to, anyone's going to come on and do a hard sell and a pitch about why I'm so amazing and why you should want to work with me. I don't, I'm not going to do that if I'm not being paid. I will pitch the shit. If you, if you give us an option and you and I have to go and pitch our fucking show, you bet your ass I'm going to pitch because I've been paid. That's my job. But this is a conversation. So anyway, I got off and I felt terrible. It was Friday. Terrible. So that's my story about that. What are your thoughts? My thoughts about it are this. Okay. First of all, it should not come as any surprise to me yet it always does that um, this is exactly the thing I wanted to talk to you about and, and the thing I wanted to run by you. But also, um, you know, this has happened to me also so many times. I mean, I don't like interview with people like you do, but what I'm saying is I am also a truth teller. I am also a person who really can't tolerate bullshit. And, no, and it's, really not, it's not the way that people, other people say it like, Oh, I hate fakeness. It's like, no, I, I can't, I, it's like, it feels like a toxic sludge coming over me. And I feel like it's my, you know, responsibility to myself to, and to the world, you know, cause I get overblown in my thinking, uh, to, to make sure they understand what the truth is of the situation is. Yeah. And being a well, therapist. I think, would you say and, it feels dangerous or like talk, like it is threatening when the bullshit, when you are starting to participate? very yeah, dishonesty makes me go into this swoon of like, oh my God, my dad is telling me that up right. is down and down right. is up. And right. like, I can't, okay. I can't, Got I can't, it. I can't. Yeah, it's not just like yeah. you have some <laughs> self-righteous like thing about the truth. It's that it's physically and emotionally and probably spiritually intolerable to like live in that world of what the fuck and this is not right. Like, yeah, okay. It ignites my fight or flight. It. it really yeah. does. It really, I get very panicky yes. when somebody starts lying right. to me, which is a problem for me because people lie to me all the yeah, time. All the you time. Know, like, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the other thing is, and it's actually happened on our show a few times, not with a bad outcome, I don't think on our show, but it's a different setting to be, you know, the, the subject of a podcast versus interviewing. Um, people are very, frightened by therapists and former therapists and even just very insightful people. So I've seen it happen on our show that you get right to the center of something and the person is overwhelmed. I think what happens in the podcast setting is the whole thing is about them. So they may feel overwhelmed, but they also feel like it's a safe environment to go there. Whereas in an interview, it's all about this power dynamic. It's like the person who's in the position of being, you know, met with, let's say, automatically feels like you should be kissing their ring. Even though they would never want you to do that in the job, they would right. never, they would want you to put your best foot forward in the job, they would want you to come in with a sense of autonomy and power and, 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 and to kind of like, because, oh, my God, you couldn't possibly MC anything legitimately where you didn't bring that big dick energy to right. it like that that's what that's actually what they're looking for but then when they get it they're like hmm I don't know if I want this so I'm guessing she felt naked when you started asking her any questions whatsoever about herself which is means she needs she needs therapy and then during the conversation when she understood more about who you really were then she felt like an asshole and sometimes when people feel like an asshole instead of 
what my inclination is when, when I'm, when I realize I'm being an asshole, my inclination has become really obsequious. Yeah. Some people's um, inclination when somebody's being an asshole is to double down and be a bigger asshole. And I feel like that must happen a lot more in Hollywood because it's all, this is the thing I want to run by you. So it's like all egos and you don't know the way this person needs their ego stroked. And you don't know when you're supposed to be the alpha versus the big, you know, it's like, it's a constant, constant guessing game. Constant. And this is how we get Weinsteins, right? Because yes, exactly. we create these yeah. monsters. We're all participating in this, this, this system. It's a system of ego yeah. stroking and like who's in charge and top dog, underdog. And like, what the, f- it, and then it, okay. Yes. And then my, my follow-up to that is, so I wanted to be really sure that when I talked to the person that referred me to her, that I wasn't bad mouthing because I know that this agency does really right by her. Like I, that they are not. And so it's truly felt like a bad match, right? It didn't feel, I mean, I could go on and on about the problems I have with the way the conversation went, but ultimately for all, you know, practical, practical purposes, it's just not a good match. Right. And so I call cause the person wanted to know how the meeting went. And I said, listen, I learned a lot, which is the total truth. I learned a lot about a lot of things, myself, the situation, this industry, probably all the things I said. And I, And I think what happened was this person misinterpreted my authenticity for lack of a better word. I sort of hate that word now, but my whatever, the way I am for not having my shit together and not being like, um, uh, like getting out there and swinging my dick. I think that I have a different way of swinging my dick and that is just the way it is. And that's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And I said that, and the response was interesting. And I, I, it was interesting. She was lovely and kind. And also, um, said, I wonder if, and then sort of threw it back on maybe we, maybe women should be swinging our dick. Maybe I wasn't swinging my dick in that way because I was afraid to, come across as too much to, which is not out of the question. I just don't know. That's the answer to the systemic problem. Does that make sense of the whole? Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Of course it's not. No. Of course so, it's not. so playing and, the and, game, and, playing the game, like yeah, basically what she was saying in a way beans was maybe we as women and more pointedly me as a human gen should have done it a different way. Which, or could have, I shouldn't say should, but you know what I mean? Like maybe there's something in there and I get it. Like if someone was, whatever, that's, that's her job, her bread and butter. I'm not gonna, but I thought, oh yeah, that could be right. I could do that. Here's the problem with that. It would not be me. Yeah. So actually I have a thought about that, which is advice I could use on my, myself. Um, You know, when I did, uh, specifically DBT therapy. I worked with, you know, a lot of people with borderline personality disorder, and there was always a lot of conversation about being fake, you know, like if, and I think people would say it in the context often of, well, if I don't tell this person how enraged I am with them, then I'm just being fake. And when they would say that to me, I would 
think like, yeah, well, you have a point that, you know, it's this mixed message of you're supposed to live authentically, right. but then there are times when you want something to take. So um, I happened to be at an event where Marsha Linehan showed up. And oh, yes, that's she's your, the, isn't that she's your the um, founder of dialectical behavior therapy. She's the guru. She started it. And um, I went up to her and I said, hey, I've got a question I've been wanting to ask you for like 10 years. What about when my clients say to me something about being fake? And she said, without missing a beat, she said, there's not a fake thing in the universe. Everything is real. When you're acting a different way to achieve a certain goal, you are authentically acting a different way to achieve a certain goal. Everybody doesn't need to know your core values at all times. Everybody doesn't need to know exactly who you are every second. And that's hard for you and for me because I, you know, because the the dishonesty is at the core of everything that we felt has really negatively impacted our lives. Yes. And so there's this switch that I try to make, which is, okay, I'm going to be this version of myself that I can be to suit my own interests in this case. And I think when you're talking about a job, like I was actually just having this conversation with Aaron yesterday. He was saying, you're going to have to go with me to this event. And it's going to be like, it's an event where I'm going to have to play the wife of the doctor, you know, and I'm not good at that. I don't like to do that. But he said, you're going to play the game with me. And I was like, okay, I'll play the game with you. Because of course, he also has to act a lot like, (laughs) you know, the doctor instead of like having a well-rounded personality of course and because he's trying to a bigger goal of helping people and supporting his family like yeah yeah and i always i've had the situation so many times of you know you can't stop the, the psychological part of you and when you're having what what promises to be a real interaction with somebody you know my inclination is to like draw draw parallels oh you said this and then there's this and but when it's when it catches people off guard you know a lot of people really just can't handle and that's that's when the conversation ends for me like i i'm making a step to what i think is right having a connection with you right you are so unnerved by it that you yes 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 and i and listen I, yeah, and which, which was so interesting. It's interesting to hear you say, and again, DBT wise or CBT or whatever, it's like, is there room for the person not being evil? Like, I don't think this woman is an evil person at all. And I don't think I'm evil. What I think is, I think our communication styles are different. And I think the way we deal with uh, feeling unsure in situations is different. And I think that ultimately, ultimately, my core, core folks that are going to be partners in my life, whether it's business or not, are not going to communicate that way. However, that may mean I miss out on a tremendous amount of money at certain times in my life or fame or whatever it is. Um, and I think it's interesting to bring it back to the theater school. Same thing of core moments we could have chosen to pretend and play the game at that showcase moment, right? We totally could have. 
And it probably would have behooved us in a certain way to get where we maybe wanted to go and maybe bring us happiness. We did not do that because we didn't know how or it wasn't whatever. No one said to us, hey, like, hey, let's play the game and see what happens at the showcase when you play this type, this monologue type, whatever whatever it is. Brand yourself, like lean into this, whatever it is. So it's not that I didn't want her. It's interesting. It's like knowing what I know now. I would have probably approached the conversation different. I also, because you never, I never know like what is self-sabotaging and what is, what is just like, I need to be um, supported in this way by certain people. And the thing about an agent relationship is, yeah, they got to trust that you can get the job done. They got to pitch you. They got to know that you're uber confident in what you do. And I am not uber confident, confident in this or competent in this realm. So she's right. Like I, I'm, and, and the truth is I may not be ready for that kind of representation. That is, that is the truth. Or of what it. if you had said, what if you had said to her, what, let's, let's do a thought experiment about a slight adjustment to what you did, which is before you started to ask her about yourself, you said, I'd love to show you my interviewing skills. Um, would it be okay if I, you know, oh, for yeah. purposes of Much like better. demonstration, if Much I talk better. to you, like how I talk to people on my podcast or whatever. Not it is. Much better. She could have armed herself emotionally for that and then felt gratified that you asked her yeah, and right. then felt kept feeling like she was in position of power. That's nine, 99% of the time when I really go the wrong way with somebody. It's because my, um, you know, my respect for people manifests in a way that not everybody feels Correct. Res- is respectful. Like my respect for you could manifest in me talking just very honestly with you, you know, uh, um, but, and when, when somebody talks very honestly with me, I respect them greatly, but that's just not how everybody takes it in. Right. And it's yeah. just the truth. Like I, I sort of got out of the way of, I had to get out of the way of who's good and who's bad because I was like starting to villainize myself, then villainize her and villainize the person. Also, she's just scared. Like right. that's her thing. She's frightened. Like the, the two bits of information I got about her was the way she did with her eyes. And then her saying, I'm not being articulate. She's a frightened person. Part of what is the architecture of her self-confidence is being in the powerful position in these interactions. And when something, you know, threatens that, it's like she maybe has the same reaction to that as I have to people lying to me, you know, which is right. Right. We don't know what people's buttons are. Right. That is the thing. So and it was very helpful because I thought, okay, well, when I do meet with other people, we'll see how it goes. I mean, it definitely informed my interview yesterday for the job, you know, and it went fine. And it was, I, I actually don't have as much trouble in this area um, in other places as I do in the entertainment industry because of the, yeah, sure. Of course. Sort of inherent and, weirdness. And honestly, I, I've, you know, I've, I, I borrowed that phrase that I've been saying a lot recently is of what 
gifts for you will not go by you from from Brian Cox from his um, autobiography. And uh, I, I love it so much. And it's such a helpful thing to think about when you don't get something that you wanted to get. You don't get something that you probably deserve to get. You don't get something that was, I mean, case in point, we Brian Cox said yes know, to an interview. Now we can't get him. Now, they, now we can't get him. So I guess I have to say, I guess Brian Cox was not for me. So he's going by me. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know? right, right. At this time. And that's the thing. The other thing is like that things shift and change. But for right now, and it was interesting. It was interesting when, when, when I told my, my friend that made the connection, um, uh, she was like, well, you're still going to send her all your stuff, right? When you assemble your public speaking reel. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't even know if I want to assemble a public speaking reel at this point. And I still don't. So it may have served a really good purpose to see that. Like, maybe that's not my jam, you know, like it's interesting. It's all data. And I'm so grateful. And I sent the thank yous and I did all the things because I am grateful. And I also just everyone has different styles of operating. And that is like what you said about ways of communicating. Like, that's mind blowing to me. Cause I'm like, why wouldn't, right. Why wouldn't authenticity and transparency and whatever be celebrated and be accepted and be the norm? Well, because it's just not the norm. Like it's just not how people work, all people. And it's also, People are in different places. And so, you know, it, it's very, it's very interesting to hear you say that, like about the, yeah, like what is, is really exciting and um, that I run towards and you run towards maybe other people run away. And I'm like, but run away. Yeah, dumb. exactly. But that's, I was just just this truth. that's just the truth. I was having this conversation with my son yesterday because he, um, he has a friend that he's been friends with for just like a few months and when I met him, he, he came over to the house. He, I, he put out his hand to shake my hand and I looked into his face and I said, inside my reptilian brain said, that person is a narcissistic sociopath. The, just this is the, my little bit of data that of I'm course. keeping in the back of my mind, never going to share with anybody. Well, as happens when you're close, when you, and when you invest in a relationship with a narcissistic sociopath, they disappoint you. <laughs> Sure. Right. Sure. And the people sometimes small, sometimes big ways. Yes. Sometimes big. And so he had this experience. He was feeling really upset. And I said, listen, it's no, it's not even really a value judgment. Like nobody wants to be a narcissistic sociopath, but some people just are. And therefore they're not capable of giving you the thing that you seek from them. And you will always be banging your head against the wall when it comes to trying to get reciprocity from these people. And I think, you know, Hollywood is full of salesmen, excellent, brilliant, wonderful salesmen who have to turn off a little bit of the empathy in their own self to be able to constantly be selling themselves. It's just the nature of the beast. And I think the people who've been successful, who are like deeply empathic, which is a lot, a lot of artists, is having the team that works, you know, that is your, is your intermediary. But sometimes even getting to that team or, you know, getting to the right place for somebody who's going to then go and speak for you is tricky. Like you're experiencing. (laughs) 
Today on the podcast, we are talking to Cynthia Darlow. Cynthia is an actor. She's done everything. She's been everywhere. She's met everyone. You probably know her from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but there's a lot more to her than that one role. She went to North Carolina School of the Arts, and she's a fantastic gem. So please enjoy our conversation with Cynthia Darlow. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's an honor to have you. And and we always start the same way, which is to say, congratulations, Cynthia Darlow, you survived theater school. <laughs> and we want to hear all about it. Please tell us about, um, well, we love to hear why people picked the school they did and also kind of like what you thought it would be versus what it was like when you actually got there. Okay. Um, well, uh, I went to the North Carolina School of the Arts when it was just about born. Um, it was my, my class was the second drama class <laughs> ever. <laughs> Um, I only knew about it because um, I only discovered the theater in my junior year of high school. I did not grow up wanting to be an actress. I wanted to grow up and go to college and teach English Lit. That was my big dream. Um, but I, I had a big family upheaval situation, and I ended up moving from Mich Detroit, Michigan to uh, Hampton, Virginia. Uh, it was like going to a foreign country, actually. I mean, the kids, I, I used to think I was so lucky to grow up in a place that had no accent. <laughs> I had this thick Midwestern accent with hard R's, you know, and stuff like that. And you that, had no you know? idea, right? No, no. And the kids would come up to me in the hall and say, ooh, you talk so funny. Say something for us. You know? <laughs> well, I had, I, I enrolled in um, um, a drama class because I thought it was about reading plays. And I love to read. I'd been reading since I was four, always a big bookworm little brown mouse who never spoke to anyone, just always had my nose in a book. And um, uh, this was an elective. Well, we didn't have electives in the high school I went to in Detroit. We had armed police guards in the halls. You know, it was like, <laughs> no electives. And, Wait, I have, um, to every kid had a I have to interrupt. Every kid had a weapon and you had armed guards. What it was yeah, happening? What in the Detroit is going on? Inner city school. Inner city school. Yeah, yeah. Rough neighborhood, inner city school. Um, you know, girl, we had big beehive hairdos in the 50s and 60s, and girls would have razor blades tucked in there, and it was like, yeah. Oh, was, my God, you yeah. lived West Side Story. Yeah, and I was a little <laughs> pipsqueak. I couldn't have a weapon. It would be used against me immediately. What I had was a whistle. <laughs> okay, so you were using your voice from the beginning. That's <laughs> sort good. Of, sort of. <laughs> So I enroll in this high school in the South, and um, it's about, I think it's about reading plays. Well, it was not that at all. Um, this Svengali genius of a teacher, uh, just calling roll on the first, my first day of school, he, I said, present, and he said, wow, what a voice. And I looked around like, who is he talking to? You know? <laughs> well, anyway, this teacher really took me under his wing. Um, uh, he forced me to be in the first school play which was, you can't take it with you. And I begged and pleaded. I said, please don't make me go in front of people. I will die. I will sew your costumes. I will build your props. I will paint your scenery. I will do anything else. Please don't make me go in front of people. He said, no, no, no. You're the only teenager I've got with a voice husky enough to play the Russian countess. So 
They threw me into a vintage evening gown and went out on stage, and I said my first line, and the entire audience laughed, and I could not believe it. Wait, wait, so, <laughs> wait, Cynthia, so you you didn't audition nothing. You were cast as the Russian count. He made me do it. Oh, he made you do it, and, and, and were you scared? Terrified. And what? I had diarrhea oh, the whole yeah, day. Yeah, it's like the story. Every time it was for I audition. Wait, but how um, How did you get over the fear to get your butt on that stage? Uh, this teacher, he was just amazing. And he just really paid a lot of attention to me and thought I had something. And I was in every play from then on. I couldn't do enough for him. He had a library of plays in his office that I went through, as they say down there, like Grant took Richmond. And he saw in a Sunday supplement magazine from the Sunday paper this article about the North Carolina School of the Arts. And he brought it to me and he said, this is where you should be going. This is where you belong. And I was like, <laughs> you know, anyway, um, I came from a very poor family. Mom was a single mom, uh, two teenagers to raise with like under $4,000 a year. And uh, he paid for my college boards. And he coached me, and he drove me 10 hours to North Carolina to audition for the School of the Arts. And I got in and got a scholarship. Oh, you have to say his name. You have his to shout him out. His name is David McClung. Wow, he's, he's thank you, on. David McClung. Yeah, teachers, yeah. I mean, none of us would be here without great teachers who are our champions. I mean, he literally saved yes. my life. He literally and did. And were, you were also probably like his muse in some way. Like here he is in the South teaching teaching drama. And now all of a sudden he has, it sounds like he saw a student that was really exciting in terms of their career trajectory. So you probably helped him a bunch too in terms of being a teacher. Well, I wasn't the only at-risk teenager he saved either. There are about five others of us, and three of us ended up in the School of the Arts. Um, yeah, and, wow. and, the, and then he ended up on the faculty at the School of the Arts for a while. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's it was amazing. Quite the story. So you had no, I mean, I'm guessing, like, usually the story is in a family where the resources are really limited. Nobody's thinking about, like, oh, do you want to be a star one day? <laughs> So, so, so there was no, no conversation about that. But what about like, as you think back now, and you think about how you were as a little kid, I know you were into books and everything like that. But did you put on little shows ever? Did you ever, were you, did you ever ham it up even just for your family? Just for my, just for my siblings. Uh, we didn't have many toys. So I would make sock puppets. I would sew buttons on for the eyes and make little tongues hanging out of the little mouth. And I would make my siblings laugh with the, with the hand puppets. Uh, but that was it. I loved singing, but I I, did, I would never open my mouth to sing. But I would watch the Ed Sullivan show or or uh, Mitch Miller, and I would mouth the words to the TV. And I thought the production numbers were so fabulous, and I loved costumes. Oh, I thought costumes were great. I never got tired of playing dress-ups. I always like to say I found a way to get them to pay me to play dress-ups for the rest of my life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So first day, you're, you start classes. I know it's only the second class at NCSA. You go in, I mean, what were you thinking it would be like? Because the story that Boz, that I always tell is that my te drama teacher in high school was the English teacher. So we just like learned our lines and we just did, stood here and we just did the play. So it wasn't until I went to theater school that I learned about like warming up, <laughs> space work and improv and all this kind of stuff. And it, uh, it was, you were talking about a culture of shock moving to West Virginia. It was such a 
culture shock to be like in movement clothes and all that kind of stuff. So what was your experience? Well, I had a bit of a setup because this teacher of mine was also affiliated with a, a dinner theater in Williamsburg, Virginia. And right after the day after I graduated from high school, I left home and never came back. And I had an apprenticeship at Williamsburg at the Wedgwood Dinner Theater for the summer. And then I was going in September right to the School of the Arts. But the summer session culminated in a trip to New York to see three Broadway plays. But in that that apprenticeship, I mean, these guys were pros. We learned about professionalism. We learned, you know, everything. We had movement. We had speech. We had improv. We had our, our um, culminating in some way, we had to put together an, uh, an entire little production of our own. Each student had to do that. So I had, I had a professional setup. I wasn't like school. They trained me as a professional, like a professional actor. And um, so that was just an amazing setup. And then to come to New York and see my very first Broadway show. First of all, I thought New York was going to be astounding because I thought when I was a little girl, there was this thing when you uh, you could uh, send in box tops from cereal boxes and get prizes. Well, it seemed like the address was always in New York. I thought, well, New York has all the prizes. So who wouldn't want to visit there, you know? <laughs> That's that's hilarious. What was what was your take on New York and also what did you what Broadway shows did you see? I knew the minute I set foot on the island that this was where I had to be. I totally did. I never felt so excited and at home about any place in my life. I loved every second of it. I loved the crazy bustle and the noise and, and the theater. Oh, my God. In those days, you could do standing room for five bucks, you know, and it was just I saw everything I possibly could. So the first thing I saw, a little hit called Man of La Mancha with Richard Kiley and Joan Diener. Oh. And uh, years later, I got to work with Richard Kiley. So that was pretty, pretty swell. And uh, I saw APA Phoenix production of uh, Wild Duck and with Ellis Rabb and Rosemary Harris and all those people. Well, uh, all I wanted to do was be a member of the APA Phoenix. That was that was going to be my company. Oh, man. I, well, I was just thrilled with that work. And I think the other thing we saw was I Do, I Do with Mary Martin and Robert Preston. Wow. Yeah. So you're what so you're there, you're you're amazed by the island of Manhattan, you're watching plays, you have some inkling that this is what you're going to do. Did you ever have um a particular actor whose career you wanted to emulate or did you kind of figure it out as you were going along? I figured out as long as I, as I went along. Um I think I did learn the most from watching other professionals. Uh always, always and was very lucky to work with some astounding people. And um, But I loved class, too. Oh, my God, when I got to the School of the Arts, I felt like I had been let out of a cage. I had no idea what I was in store for, not the first clue. And I was a sponge. I, couldn't, I would have licked boots to be near a theater. What do you do you think that I can't help but wonder about, you know, your under as as we say these days, under resourced childhood, basically poor, let's just say, you know, like, would did that oh, yeah. have something to do with with the amount of sort of sponginess once you got to School of the Arts? Or what do you attribute your like passion and desire Well, I didn't learn how to do anything else. And I didn't want to. Um, it was all I wanted from the moment I discovered that I could do this and that people would let me do it. 
uh, there was just nothing else, and I still feel that way. I just I can't imagine doing anything else. I had a lot of crazy support jobs. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it was always about theater. It was always my focus. It um, uh, there was just nothing else for me. It was a calling that I okay. couldn't deny if I'd wanted to. Okay, so one more question about this. So when we got to school, my um, experience was that a lot of us were lazy. And I, I mean this in the best way. You were not, we were lazy, and, and you didn't seem like a lazy kind of student. Back then, were, did you have classmates where you were like, oh, they're really just not not taking advantage? Or was everyone really into it? I just wonder. Um, I was probably crazier than most because I was such a complete sponge. Um, I didn't think about other people being lazy or not. I really didn't because I, I had two work study jobs and I was get a full class load because I was trying to get my degree in three years because I had no money. So I had, I didn't have any cash whatsoever. I mean, when everybody would go out for a Coke, I couldn't go. I didn't have a nickel for a Coke. Truly. Wow. And uh, and I would yeah it was okay. uh, I was completely focused on that. So you were single yeah driven. you were driven like single focused to get everything you could out of North Carolina School of the Arts and then go work professionally. I, I never had a date. I never had a boyfriend. I never went to any social activities. I was always in rehearsal or studying or working. Wow. What about any? Did you have any friction with your mom as you talked about picking this as your career? I wish that uh, my family had been interested but they weren't. <laughs> so they were just like, you're on your own, do whatever you want. Yeah. There was no yeah. plan for me. No plan. There was no plan mm. in place. What, what, was no. there a plan for your siblings who were male? Was that part of it? No, no, nope. just no plan. Okay. Nope. Wow. No plan. Well, you made your no, own these plan. people should never have been plans. Yeah, we say that a lot on this show <laughs> about people. Well, and a lot of people who arrive in New York and feel that they're home, it's like they call it the island of misfit toys for yes. a reason, you know. <laughs> Very good description. And you, I can tell by your backdrop, you are still in New York. You live, you live in New York. And so you stay, you've been there ever since and just, just gone places for work. Yeah, I did a lot of regional theater in my, in the beginning of my career. Um, my fair, my very first job was uh, uh, with no union card or anything like that. I was at the Manhattan Theater Club and they had, in those days, there was a dispensation where you could have so many non-equity members in the company. Well, will you hear this one. It was two Tennessee Williams one-act plays. Portrait of a Madonna and This Property is Condemned. Well, I did This Property is Condemned. And um, my director, I got this job because my director was one of my former acting teachers at the School of the Arts. And she knew that I had moved to New York. And um, she hired me at the Manhattan Theater Club. And in the second play, Portrait of a Madonna, was an actress named Olive Deering. Now, I think she was the sister of Arthur Penn. Um, they were related somehow. But anyway, she and Tennessee Williams were old pals. And Tennessee Williams came. He came to the show. Oh! And he oh. came. Yeah. And he came late. He came halfway. Uh, this, this property is the first play, and he came in the middle of This Property is Condemned. And he told me later, later that he had never seen a production of This Property. It was the first time. So he came in. Well, he starts laughing and having a wonderful time and being engaged with us. And I mean, the whole audience looking, and people are starting to recognize who the hell that is, you know. So the Gosh. second play, and I had a small part in the second play. With, uh, with Olive. Did Go you ahead. know on stage that you saw him come in and you were like, oh, 
there's the playwright. Right. You were so into your work no. that you good for you because yeah. I'm not so good like that. So when I was in into my play and a, a movie star came, I like totally broke it. You, you're a consummate professional, my friend. No, no, no. I didn't know who it was. I just thought it was a late guy. I had no idea it was Tennessee Williams until after the show. <laughs> Did he yeah. give notes? No, but he gave a talk back, an instantaneous, impromptu talk back. Oh, tell us everything. Oh, my God. So, uh, okay, so we do the second play, and um, Olive is wonderful and everything, you know, and I have this teeny little part of her nurse, you know, and we're taking our bows, and he gets up out of the audience and comes down on the stage and gives Olive a big hug, and he said, y'all want to talk for a while? And so <laughs> stage manager rushed some chairs out on the stage, and we all sat down, he starts taking questions from the audience, and we're there for about maybe 15, 20 minutes. He goes, all right, y'all, I think it's time to go and get something cool to drink. Sure. And so that oh, was that. Yeah, I yeah. bet. Yeah, so then we went out drinking drink. with Tennessee Williams. <laughs> Where did you go? We went to a bar somewhere in the neighborhood. And uh, we were laughing and talking. Have a fabulous time. I was like, I had, my, I was, I had probably had drool wait, coming wait, down wait, my wait, chin. Cynthia, this know. is your first New York? My first job. Oh, my, my first job. And you job. end up drinking? So, Drinking with, with Tennessee yeah. Williams and even meeting him is yeah. like, were you like, what is even my life? How is this happening yeah. to me? Yeah. Okay, go on. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I thought I thought I was on my way. Oh, please. So there's this talk about let's do an evening of Tennessee Williams one acts on Broadway. I said, that's it. I am on my way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it never happened. I starved for the next year and a half. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, wait, what year was that? Because I'm going to look and see if I can find anything about it on the internet and link to it on our show notes. That would have been 1970. Let's see. Uh, probably about 1973, I think. Okay. I think. Well, okay. So you spent the next year starving. We love to hear the struggle story. <laughs> so, t you know, and by the way, everybody who's ever had one modicum of success in the beginning of their career does the exact same thing and says, I'm on my way, baby. Here, I'm just going to sit here and wait for the checks to yeah. roll in. <laughs> and it almost never works for anybody. So no. tell us how it worked for you. <laughs> well, um, I came to New York. Uh, uh, I, my first job out of school was touring the nation with the National Shakespeare Company. So that was an incredible experience. That was like, boy, that really completed things. Also, be in the summer after my uh, uh, second year, I uh, had a, a short uh, summer session in England at the Rose Bruford Training School of Speech and Drama. Well, when I came back to the States, I thought between the training I got in England, the training from the School of the Arts, there was nothing I couldn't do. And I really have been so lucky. I've gotten to do everything from absurdist to Shakespeare to musicals, you name it. I've gotten to do it all. Amazing. And I had never sung or danced before. It was crazy. So anyway, um, I, I get, uh, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, you were touring with Shakespeare when you got out of school. Yeah, so right after that tour. How... Thank you, thank mm -hmm. you. Give me the trigger. Mm -hmm. I, I have to wait for the, the train of thought to pull back into the depot. So I, I get on a bus and I go to New York. And after the bus ticket, I've got about $25 left. Uh, I had no job, no place to live. I, I had friends from college who had already moved here. And I thought, well, I'm just going to couch surf for a little while until I can figure it out. But I was, I was too stupid to be that scared. And I just went after it. Uh, so uh, I had two girlfriends who were living at a place called the Rehearsal Club on West 51st between uh, 5th and 6th. 53rd rather. This sounds like some a scene from the women. What well, is the rehearsal club? Well, it is. It just club? about is because uh, the rehearsal club. Do you, did you ever see the movie uh, or the there was the, the Edna Thurber wrote the play Stage Door, 
and it was on Bro it was a book, it was a Broadway play, and then it was a movie. Well, that theatrical boarding house was a real place. It was the rehearsal club. It was started by like Helen Hayes and uh, Catherine Cornell and a bunch of other people from the um, Actors event, uh, Episcopal Drama Guild or something like that. And uh, fast forward to that, I've been very instrumental in resurrecting the rehearsal club, and I'll tell you about that later. I love um, this. I cannot wait to hear yeah, about that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, I called a couple of girlfriends who were living at the rehearsal club, and they said, well, we're kind of full up, but come meet the house mother. Maybe it was something we can do. House mother took pity on me, uh, put me in a room, a uh, cot in a room with three other girls, and I had this room and two meals a day for about 60 bucks a week. Well, I didn't even have the 60 bucks. So I gave them 10 towards my food, and the next morning I went out and got the New York Times for the want ads and backstage for the auditions, and off I went. Well, I got a job waiting tables down in the village right away because I happened upon a cafe that had just put in a sidewalk uh, addition, and they needed an extra hand, just walked into it. So I was a waitress. Um, I was babysitting. Um, I passed out pamphlets in Times Square dressed as a gorilla for $4 an hour. Um, I started a cleaning company, which I didn't even have a phone. I had I made little business cards printed up called Out Damn Spot. And me and two other actresses would come and clean your apartment I for 15 bucks. That's perfect. <laughs> and between all those jobs, I could never get back to get my two meals at the rehearsal club. Uh, so I was, you know, but they would often save a sandwich for me or put some soup in the refrigerator. Because I wasn't the only one in that position, you know. They were great. Anyway, they saved my life. I was only there for a few months when I finally was able to get enough money together to uh, take an, a rent an apartment with a roommate. And off I went. You know, you have said a few times about people who've saved your life. And I, I understand that you've had champions. But you saved your life. I mean, you got yourself <laughs> out of the situation, you know, you, where you were living, you got yourself with some help, but into that school. And then, I mean, honestly, the number of people who spend one week in New York and say, oh my God, what was I thinking? I just, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, you it could fill several, you know, phone books. So you have a lot of perseverance. You also have so what much, you so much pluck. You are a plucky oh, person. I'm a survivor. Oh, what do you attribute? I'm a survivor from the core. Okay, what do you? Is it that sort of Midwest Detroit spirit? What is it? I think I had one uncle who got out, and he said to me over and over again, "Education is the way out." And it was a desperate situation in my family home, and I thought he could. He, and he became very well off. He was the uh, president of a company uh, that made conveyor belts for the automotive industry in Detroit. And um, he was always uh, my favorite. He was my father figure. And he, he just showed me that there was a way out if you worked hard enough. I think that was my example. Okay, so you got to tell us what you're doing now with the rehearsal club. Okay. So, <clears throat> uh, how, it's such a long story. How well, do can I do we this? start with saying, um, can I live there? Um, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tell us how you resurrected it or are trying okay. to. So uh, about oh, about 13 years ago, um, the one of the women in the one of the original uh, residents at the rehearsal club uh, had a tea party, Kathy Conry. And she said, let's get together and catch up on each other's lives and find out what we're doing. Well, they had such a good time. They decided to reform the club. So they formed a little club. There was no residence or anything. There was there was uh, the, the club actually was open from. 1913 to 1979. So this, yeah, 
Yeah. So uh, anyway, we formed a club. We elected officers. We're paying dues. We are the rehearsal club again. Okay. Uh, was always my dream to have that residence in place again. I just thought it was so important, and it saved so many lives. So many. Carol Burnett lived there. Kim Cottrell, uh, Diane Keaton. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a huge list, a huge list of people who lived there. Um, so anyway, uh, it was my big dream to get this going again, and uh, I think people thought I was nuts, and they were right. But um, I was just really thinking about the residence. I really, and I felt this would be this would make me feel great to give back because it really did save my life. And um, I was noodling around on the computer one day and I came across this organization called Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. And they helped uh, artists who are known for not having particularly great business heads get their dreams realized in a legal manner. So they were having a seminar for 75 bucks and I thought, going to pony up and go take this to see what I can learn. So I went and I came out of there with a packet of information about two inches thick and I was so excited. And so I took it back to a rehearsal club meeting and I said, listen, I found out about this place and then, um, you know, they, 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 we could go nonprofit. If we became a nonprofit company, we could get grants and we could raise money and it would be all this stuff that would really help us get a residence resurrected. Well, eh, 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 nobody really, well, what about this and who about that and who's going to do this? And I said, you know, you're right. We need more information. So I went back to the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, this time with one of my girlfriends, and uh, said, what do we do? Uh, we have this re idea that we want to reestablish this theatrical residence for young women, and how do we even begin? So they took a meeting with us for about two hours around a conference table, answered all our questions. They asked us a bunch of questions. At the end of the meeting, they said, you guys should go nonprofit. I said, okay. So we came out of the meeting and we walked out and my girlfriend said, our women are not going to want to do this work. I said, I know. So we took it back to the meeting and I, she said, okay, you lead. No, okay. So I explained what we learned and we took a vote. Unanimous. Let's go forward. Wow. Everybody wow. must have felt, everybody must have felt so invested. You, are, were the other people, people who had also lived there? Oh yeah. We're all residents. Oh. All former residents. Oh. Yeah. That's so, fantastic. Yeah, so a year and a half ago, we became, almost two, two years ago now, we became a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, I had, I recently had a very high-profile job with the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes, yes, you did. We, we got to get to all your, it, there's a <laughs> lot of high-profile jobs in your, uh, in your res, on your resume there, my friend. So what happened with the rehearsal club deal was I was at a gala, and I met an investigative reporter. And she started chatting me up, asking a thousand questions. And here we are in the middle of this elegant cocktail party. And we're like, blah, 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 blah. and she said, you know, I'm going to give you my card. I think my paper might want to do a story on you. I said, really? I said, who's your paper? She said, the New York Post. And I, went, <laughs> I put the card in my evening bag. I thought, well, that's that, you know. No. Three weeks later, she calls up. She's hired a photographer. And we go out for about five hours of taking pictures in front of where I had my first Broadway show, and where the rehearsal club used to be. And then we ended up the post uh, tea room at the back at the paper. And. And uh, she publishes this full-page article in the Post. Well, my email box was exploding. My phone was ringing off the hook. We touched some kind of a nerve. It was just amazing. And uh, this place called the Webster Apartments, uh, which was a female residence that I had never heard of, got in touch with me and said, we should have lunch. We didn't know about you. And I said, well, I didn't know about you. So we have lunch. Find out that the Webster Apartments were built by the R.H. Macy family to house their female clerks when they came to work at Macy's in New York. You're serious? Yeah. They used to house their employees? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. 
So this well, the beautiful- other thing is, wait, I just have to interrupt and say that like, I think this is such a beautiful thing for safety for women in big cities. Yes. Like yes, this is yes. we don't do this at all anymore. When no. in LA, New York, Chicago, it doesn't exist. So, and people and women, no wonder women fall into whatever the sex trafficking situation exactly, is. Exactly. All right, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. I just have to say it. I want to see one in issue. every city that has an arts uh, community. I want to see one in London. I want to see one in Paris. I want to see one in LA. I want to see one in Chicago. I want to see one in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if yeah, we have the model down yet for that, but <laughs> well, no. But you're going to get there, yeah. and honestly, it's so important because basically, and and as you well know, for certainly for theater, okay. Well, if you're independently wealthy, then sure, you know, take your chance at being even in that uh, among the one percent who can actually, you know, get repeat work or, or make a living doing it. And th- so this is such a huge barrier, and it's in. And by the way, it's like not even only big cities that people are priced out of, right? right? It's people are getting priced out of any urban center whatsoever. Right. Like it's, it's kind of pretty and, dire. And imagine trying to plan a career in the performing arts in this country where there's no support. There's no, no support. You can't do it anymore. It's, it's, and it's, and it's, who it's, saved everybody's bacon during the pandemic? The performing we artists. did yeah yeah so okay so here's my next question is you are now we've we've covered i hope what, first of all what's the name of the nonprofit? is it called the rehearsal club yeah what's it called? The rehearsal club okay great yeah. so people we can find it online i'm yeah. sure um, um but yeah go ahead no there's a there's a, there was an article uh last february i believe it was a three-page article in the new york times on this with pictures it's amazing I, okay, we'll link to it. That's great. We'll link to it. Um, so tell us about, yeah, so you've, now you're, let's take us back to you are a professional working actor. You are um, clearly meeting very amazing artists. Um, how did you transition into like the whole business of getting an agent, representatives, and all that stuff? <laughs> Another ridiculous story. <laughs> I got my, uh, after that, you know, starving after the Tennessee Williams experience, <laughs> um, I went to an open call, a cattle call, uh, for a little show called Grease. Um, now, I was not particularly a singer or dancer, but I was going out on anything that I was remotely right for, and I love to sing. And uh, so I thought, well, let me just go to this cattle call and find out what it's like and what's required so I'll know how to prepare and how to study to go that route, you know, because I knew that the more things you could do, the more chances you would have to get hired. So I, I thought it was so smart. I had a giant coffee and a crossword puzzle and my music tucked under my, in fact, one of the girls helped me put my music together in the parlor of the piano, the rehearsal club. And um, I'm standing in line at 7.30 in the morning. There's 240 people in line at 7.30 in the morning. The call is from 10 to 6. People dropped out all during the day. I had to go to restaurants to go to the bathroom and ask people to save my place in line. Uh, Finally got in uh, to the basement of the Royale Theater, now the Jacobs, um, uh, in the basement of the theater uh, at quarter to 6. 15 minutes left before they're going to cut off. And I can hear the auditions going on up the stairs. And they were letting people do like two bars and thank you. I thought, oh, this is going to be brutal. You know, so I get called up like five minutes to six. And um, it's like right out of a movie, this dark theater, one ghost light in the center of the stage, casting agent, dear Vinnie Liff out in the house, surrounded by pictures and resumes. He says, okay, you want to sing your, uh, your up tune? 
okay? So I sang uh, Breaking Up is Hard to Do, and he let me get all the way through it. He didn't cut me off. And he said, that was great. He said, uh, let me hear your ballad. I sang Where the Boys Are. He let me get all the way through that. He said, great, best audition I've seen all day. Come back Friday and dance. <laughs> oh, my God. At oh, the oh end God. of the day, that is really yeah. saying something. Cynthia, Very this dramatic. is like... This is so dramatic, and also you—it's it, like right out of us. It's like Barbara Streisand oh, yeah. story, right? It's a real soap opera, yeah. <laughs> and so you went back on Friday. Did you have to Did learn how to dance? Yeah. Oh, how to dance? Well, here's where I knew I was going to lose it because I was no dancer. I was no dancer. I was a little overweight. In fact, my my ballet master at the School of the Arts would come by and tap his baton on my butt and say, "Lock those deep potatoes," and he would say, "Miss Darlow, it's a good thing you're not." Blonde to boot. <laughs> I was terrible. I was just terrible. Jeting across the studio. Oh my God. <laughs> but anyway, I thought, well, here's where I lose it, but I'm going to go because I said I wanted to know how to prepare, you know. So I went to the call. Well, it was Pat Birch. She wanted people who looked like real teenagers, not dancer dancers. She wanted people who could move and who had a sense of rhythm. She knew she could train them. And I got the freaking job. It was the oh first, my gosh! The, the wait, a minute, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Not the you Broadway the company. The nas- so it doesn't a national tour of Greece as your job. What in the? You, <laughs> it's like a it's like a fairy tale. Okay, oh, yeah. so you did that for how long? Were you oh, touring? I did like five companies, <laughs> five years of Greece. I did two national companies, a season of summer stock, and then three years on Broadway, and was dance captain. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Broadway. Okay, so but who did you play? Jan. Oh, Jan. Yeah, which is a great part in the original musical was completely uh, cut uh, down to nothing in the movie. But we had this wonderful duet called Mooning. It was oh, it was great. That's so yeah, and we're still very close to this day. The whole so company. You- you got an agent through that? Like, no, then you're... No, not yet. <laughs> no. Oh, my... If you so, tell me, like, Walt Disney walks in and sees you and is like, <laughs> I'm modeling Belle, my princess, after her, no, I would no, not no. be surprised. Okay. No, no, no. No, it was getting time. Five years of Greece, I thought, well, hmm, I wonder if I can do anything else. <laughs> Will I ever be hired to do anything else, or is this it? Well, uh, it, was, it was getting time that I felt I should move on, and I decided to leave the show. Very brave move. No agent yet. Um, uh, but it was just time to move on, little knowing that the show was going to close two months later. I didn't know that. But anyway, I called up Vinnie Liff, who gave me the break in the first place. I said, Vinnie, all this time, I never needed an agent. <laughs> Who's smart with their actors? Who should I see? So he sent me to the Gage Group, and um, they took me. I was with the Gage Group for about seven years, and uh, then I went on to, uh, uh, it was Bauman Hiller, then became Bauman Redanti Shawl, and now they've merged, so it's now BRS Gage. So I've had the same agents for 55 years. It's like, <laughs> holy guacamole. Yeah. This is an insane story. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what you, what would you say the top thing is you learned from going to a theater school that you think you couldn't have learned anywhere else but at well, NCSA. Yeah, all the 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 um the rounded outness I got. I mean, I, the theater history, the dance, the improv, the uh, contemporary plays, uh, just it was just a hotbed of creativity. I mean, the people that came out of there were just astounding. Just the the talent was off the charts. There is no shortage of talent in this nation. Wow. 
Yeah, that's yeah. definitely true. The discipline, I mean, I, I was pretty disciplined anyway because I was desperate, but uh, I did learn a lot about discipline and how to manage my time and, yeah. Yeah, and just working and working through, yeah. working through. And they had guest artists, too, and working with guest artists. Oh, my God, it was amazing. I worked with Irene Daly, who did The Subject wow. Was Roses on Broadway and won a Tony for it, and we did Mother wow. Courage together. Oh, I love that play. I love that play. Um so just so you know, we, you know, we have been interviewing people and we're holding on to certain interviews until the strike is over because we want to be able to talk about your film and television work. And of course, um, what prompted me to reach out to your people is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which you were so fantastic in. Oh, was, was it a great experience? I mean, it really looked like fun, but I, you know, sometimes... That's, that's you doing a good job. Yeah, yeah. It was totally fun. It was an incredible thing to know you were going to go to work and laugh all day. Uh, it was one of the best jobs I ever had. They treated me anyway like gold. Um, I had, you know, a very small part, and but they were terse. And uh, I love the entire cast. They are such dear people. I never left work without a present in my hand. Um, it was just astounding. I got I got to go to the red carpet a couple of times. I'd never had that. Um, it was it was an astounding experience. And lifelong friendships were formed. Now Tony Shalhoub and I, <laughs> I at, when I left Greece, when I left Greece, I thought, well. I wonder if I'll ever get to do Shakespeare again, and I wonder if I'll ever do another musical, because both were kind of fluky. And on the same day, I was offered, I'm getting my act together and taking it on the road, or As You Like It at the newly forming American Repertory Theater at Harvard in Cambridge. Well, I took ART, <laughs> where I met Tony Shalhoub, and Cherry Jones was my roommate. And, you know, it was, yeah, we had... An amazing few years together. Uh, Tony just reminded me when we when we wrapped Maisel, he said, "Cindy, you realize we've known and worked together for forty three years." I said, "Oh my god!" So we had a little commemorative photo of that. <laughs> I love that about New York, by the way. Like it, it just seems very specific to New York that you can kind of keep your community and keep running into people. Do you still do theater? Oh yeah, they'll let me. <laughs> I was going to say that a similar thing. So you're obviously a New Yorker. You've been that way for a long time. Did you ever feel a pull to live in L.A.? Was there ever like, oh, now is the time to become the next L.A. starlet? How did that go down? Well, I did it. I did. I, for four years, I was bi-coastal. And I worked, I, I worked at the Amundsen and the Mark Taper Forum. And I, I worked all the time. Um, I hated L.A. It was the wrong energy for me. I couldn't stand being, and I had to learn to drive to go there. I didn't drive. Um, and it was, uh, nobody talked about anything but the industry. And it just, it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. And the theater, I was lucky to be part of the best theater that they had to offer. But other theater that I saw, I wasn't very impressed with. And people were kind of too hungry. And it was more kind of a, a star focus as opposed to the old rep actor that I am. You know? Yeah, there's a difference between um, a, a, a working actor who knows their craft and also is in it to make art versus to be rich and famous. Like that's just a different, yeah. it's a different um, mission statement. You know what I mean? And you yeah. can feel it. I live in LA and you can feel it when someone's um, like their core is a New York actor who wants to work and make beautiful, meaningful art with people that they adore versus someone who literally wants 
to have the most toys. Yeah, I never really gave a rat's ass about being famous. I really set out wanting to be the kind of actor you saw in everything and was always good, but you can't remember their name. I had also, because I was in a big thing like Greece where people became megastars. I mean, you see this loft behind me? That was built by Patrick Swayze. Wait, oh what? my God! Yeah, he was a carpenter on the side when he was a young actor, and uh, I helped him. Uh, I I saw him. What is in happening? It. How do you know? Is there anyone you don't know and has? Uh, I've been in, here for four hundred years. They've, we've at least brushed elbows. <laughs> so yeah, um, so I didn't care about being famous. I also saw a lot of people get really rich and famous, and you know, snort their entire fortune up their noses, and that right. was I wasn't interested in that. I really I love rehearsal. I never want rehearsal to end. It's almost a pain in the ass to have to perform, but then I love performing too. But yeah, yeah I'm, I have a very different focus. I really, I love the process. Oh my God, the process is what uh, feeds my soul. Oh, absolutely. Can do, do you remember and can you tell us about your um, audition for the? People love to hear audition stories. So for the for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel or for, or for anything, any memorable audition stories? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. Um, Okay, uh, the Maisel one was really fast. Uh, I got a call through my agent, you know, regular audition. Went, there was a room, the, 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 um, the Palladinos were there, and uh, the casting agent. That was it, the, three, the four of us in a room. And uh, they were at a table, I was in a chair, and I read the scene, and they laughed, they liked it, and they said, um, um, we like to work really fast. Do you like to work fast? I said, oh my God, everybody's always telling me to slow down. Yes, I like to work fast. So, And they uh, said, okay, let's have another pass of the scene. I did something that they almost fell out of their chairs, and the next day I got a phone call, I got the job. And I had no idea it was going to be a recurring uh, I thought it was a one-season deal. It was such a small character. But the character somehow caught on. And, I mean, people know who that is. The people know who Mrs. Moskowitz is. I'm just amazed. Yeah, it was such an important counterbalance for the Joel character. Yeah. I mean, it was it, it it added that sort of perfect, like, acidity to that, you know, flavor profile. And Michael well, Zugan is a dreamboat. Oh, man. Oh, really? He's yeah, he boat. seems yeah. that. He seems it. Okay, so you said you have a million stories. I'm sure there's some that got away. Oh, yeah, plenty, plenty. Um, yeah, what, what's one of those? Uh, one that just got away, just got away. Um, sadly, uh, I lost the, my husband of 25 years a year ago Tuesday. I know. I'm so sorry. Thanks. I'm so sorry. I was really reading tough. about that. And... Um, this play came my way, and I thought, oh, jeez, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore or if I can even learn lines, you know, because after the pandemic, it's been three years since I've done a play. Uh, that's never happened in my entire career. I've never gone that long without doing a play. And uh, I thought, well, I read the play, and I thought, uh-oh, this is good. Okay. All right. I'm going to work on this. Okay. So I write my, okay, I'm going to go in on this. Okay. And it was going to be also the first in-person audition in three years. So I said, okay, I'm going to go in. Well, I read the first scene, and there was you could have heard a pin drop. It, it was a, it, it's a play, I don't know if I should say, because it's not up yet, um, but it was a play about a woman. We can bleep it out if, oh, yeah. or edit it later. Yeah. It's, it, was called, um, it was called 
not a comedy as one might think from the title. It's about a woman who's dying of ovarian cancer and uh, it's a hospice situation and her family is surrounding her and all kinds of dynamics are revealed and a deep family secret gets outed and it was really an interesting play. I really liked it. So I did the first scene, pin drop, director said, wow, that was really lovely. He said, would you mind taking a look at the callback scene? Uh, I knew this was a Monday and I knew that we're having callbacks on Wednesday. So I said, well, sure. I said, I have the scene because my agent sent it to me just in case, but um, I haven't worked on it at all. He said, oh, would you like to go out in the hall and work on it? I said, you know what? No, let's just dive in cold. I won't have time to get scared. Okay. So did the second scene again, great reaction. He said, thank you. I just, I had to find a way to stay uh, in the room with you. I said, oh my God, what a sweet thing to say. <laughs> oh, thank you. I thought, well, I'll dine out on that the rest of my life. And um, I, 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 I knew the callbacks were on Wednesday and I, I didn't get a call. So I wrote to my agent and I said, here's what happened. I may have already had my call back. I don't know. Or they may be done and they've moved on. Could you just find out and let me know what the situation is? He says, oh, no, no, no. You're still in the running. The playwright has decided to uh, take a second look at some of the other characters in the play. We'll get back to you. Well, it goes on for like five weeks. I don't hear anything. I keep checking. No, they're, you're still in the running. You're still in the running. Well, then they forgot and they had cast somebody. And a week later, I found out that I was no longer in the running. They'd cast somebody else. And it made me really sad because I thought this would be such a great way to shoehorn me back into my life. It would have been. And it's just that thing of like, oh, we forgot about you because it's five weeks. And it's like it's so many, so many factors way beyond your control. If they had been casting it right then, it would have been a different story. And I also think that it's good for us and our listeners to hear that someone who has had a tremendous amount of success like yourself also goes through things that are not only in this, in this, in the, in the theater world and the entertainment industry are hard, but personally to know that like, it's not all roses and you still keep going and you are still have an attitude that you have, which is super um, positive, but also real. And that doesn't mean that hard things don't happen amongst the marvelous Mrs. Mazels. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah. 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 Wow. I don't know how people are getting, keeping going right now with, with the strikes and the pandemic and the, oh my God, it's just, uh, I, I despair sometimes of how, why would you choose to go into the arts? You cannot make a living. Well, this is my question for you is now knowing what you know and where we are, because a lot of times Gina and I will talk about, is it, is our conservatory still needed? Is it still relevant? Should people still pay this massive amount to go to them? What is your thought on the state of, um, I would say, conservatory acting training at this point? Yeah, I would say you don't. Well, I didn't get my degree, quite frankly. Uh, I, I was there for three years, and I had driven myself into the ground, got really sick, got mononucleosis, had to leave school, was gone for about nine months, and I came back and said to the dean, what do I do? He said, well, Cynthia, I don't say this to many people. He said, are you interested in teaching? I said, mm, not really. He said, well, I don't think you need the degree. I think you're ready to go out and do it. And I did. Yeah, because you, despite the fact that you didn't finish, you you gained all of that, that experience. Ex- important experience yeah, and skills. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would say I know everybody's different. Maybe people need to be in school longer, but I think a two-year conservatory probably. If you still want to do it after a really tough two-year conservatory program, I think you're on your way. 
I don't think you necessarily need the degree. And I think it should be more recognized to um, have guest artists in colleges and conservatories who have been out there doing it who don't necessarily have a degree. They should take that's right. That's right. Because they won't they, they won't have people teach unless they have MFAs a lot of times. Right. Right. And exactly. the people who don't have MFAs but are still like yourself, we want to learn from them. Kids want and young folks want to learn from them. It's like I think it needs to be restructured. And I think I the too. days. Yeah, it's a different time. And yet we still need all those things. So I'll be interested to see where all of this goes. But you don't teach at all because I would take every class you taught. <laughs> um, I did on the, as a silent. You know, I've, I've also had to have uh, side jobs uh, through my career um, because uh, theater doesn't pay. But it's what, yeah, I, as I said, feeds my soul. So uh, for a time, I, uh, I have coached audition scenes and I have uh, taught voiceover technique. Well, when the, when the technology outran me, because my students used to come out with a reel and ready to go and send it out, that's not possible for me to do anymore. And I was not going to, in a one-bedroom apartment, I'm not going to, I, I can't even have a studio. And I do audio books, and I, I can't even, I'm in a first-floor front apartment on a very busy street. There's no way I'm going to get a professional result. So, yeah, um, I have had side that, but always related to the arts. So I didn't expect to love teaching. I loved teaching. I love uh, working with uh, audition scenes. And uh, that's, I, if somebody called me, you know, this, to this day, you know, my peers who have children who now want to go in the business, they'll send their kids to me for coaching. And I have to say my record's pretty good. They almost always get a call back, if not the job. Oh, that's that is oh, an good excellent to know. record. Good so, to know. what do you want? Like, what's left in your um, bucket of your of the dreams that you have? Like, what what kind of stuff do you want to do that you haven't had a chance to do yet? I love new works. I love new plays. Uh, just this very afternoon, I got sent an audition for something that I have yet to read because this interview was happening, so I haven't read it yet. But it, it's a, it's a self tape, which doesn't just chaps me I'm just so and now my partner's gone so it's really hard but my agents are kind enough to have set up a little studio in their office when they because and they're not even in the office full-time still because of COVID but uh, they will let me come in and shoot it for me because it's just the technology the technology of it uh, it destroys my scene and my focus when I'm having to worry about turning the camera on and off it just takes me out of what I'm supposed to be doing it's desperate and I can't even get enough distance in my apartment to get a full body shot <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah, those full department. body slates make yeah. me want to choke somebody. <laughs> yeah, my when my husband was here, he would have to pan up and down because we couldn't get enough distance. <laughs> so yeah, I yeah, doing new works, doing new plays, and this is a new play, so we'll see. Uh, that is my favorite. I love working the bugs out of a new play; just my favorite thing to do. I would love to do another Broadway show. I've done ten. I'd love to have an even dozen before I go out. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Really, I will still some... do whatever anybody would hire me to do. That's what a whore I am. Yeah, yeah no, no, that's <laughs> what a, that's what a worker you are. Who are some, um, maybe some playwrights that people don't necessarily know about that you could shout out people whose work you love? Well, I did, uh, I was actually known for a while as being a Chris Durang actress. I did like five Chris Durang plays that just adored his stuff just adored it. And I love repertory acting. I mean, I was part of a, a, a company called the Actors Company Theater. TACT was the acronym. I was a member of TACT for 22 years. I probably did 27 plays with them. 
Um, and we were we had we were a company. We had like a shorthand. We'd worked together for all these years, and it was just oh, I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it. It was just wonderful, and I loved having that artistic home. Oh God, it made me feel so safe. Yeah, I mean, you. It's interesting. We all are looking for family in a way, right? And a family. You found family in the theater. Yes, absolutely right. It's brilliant, and you like respected and loved the theater family so much that you soaked it all in and you do you do right by it which is fantastic well the greasers you know we still have zooms we got one coming up uh, next sunday i believe it is uh we have a zoom meeting about every two months and we just had our book you know two years ago was our 50th anniversary of greece and tom moore and uh one of the original producers um uh, ken weissman and adrian barbeau uh, asked us all to contribute our memoirs, and they assembled them into a book, and it sold out on Amazon in the first 10 days. It's called, oh, my gosh. It's called Grease, Tell gonna... Me More, Tell Me More. It's a great read. It's a great I'm read. assuming they're going to do a reprinting. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Oh, well, this has been so great chatting with you. You guys are Thank delightful. I just... listen, <laughs> listen, we need you people like you that are still theater actors that can also of course do film and tv but if the theater is to survive this knowledge that you have over all these years is essential for for people to to know i hope so i hope so i think it's important too yeah absolutely Okay, are you on social media or do you have a website? I have a website that is in flux right now. I'm working on it. Uh, it's CynthiaDarlow.com. In fact, my, my webmaster just wrote to me and said, take a look, I've done some stuff and I haven't had a chance to yet because I'm about to okay, do... Okay, so I'm coming about, soon. I'm about to do a gala also, for the rehearsal club. The rehearsal oh, club, right. people. Rehearsal everyone club. look up the rehearsal club nonprofit because I'm sure you all could use some help from people and support to get this thing back off we the ground. We offer an for amazing deal. We, we subsidize rent and we offer workshops and mentorship, and it's an amazing program. Oh, well, I'm, I'm going there right now. Oh, yeah, <laughs> if you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!